Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awaken podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for this chance to sit down with you. This is just a chance to, to show some vulnerability, to talk about being human, to talk about the human experience and all that goes into that. And I hope you've enjoyed the recent conversations with Glenn Osland, uh, the author and host of the podcast and book, uh, Bathing with God. And I hope you've enjoyed those conversations. And that's really the space I love to play in. Um, let me just get a couple little things out of the way. If you have not joined as a member of the Almost Awakened Reddit page, I would suggest you do that. This would be reddit.com backslash r backslash almost awakened, all one word. And essentially, if, if you're familiar with Reddit, it's a beautiful place in terms of discussion forums. And, and all these forums get to be based around whatever topics or genres uh, that people find interesting. And so you can find tons of Reddit forums. There's millions of them, I guess. And you can essentially go off into any space that you find interesting. But on the Almost Awakened Reddit page, there, as of right now, there are 139 members. And on that page, every week, I'm trying to share not only the Almost Awakened audio episodes, but also other articles and uh, newsworthy science uh, articles or newsworthy advancements in understanding human behavior. Recently, there was an article on the proven benefits of uh, cannabis, how you can love someone with anxiety. Did early Christians use psychedelics? So there are tons of informative links for you to learn and understand better your own humanity and the humanity of people around you. Humanity is what I wanted to talk about today. It is essentially human behavior that I, I just find so fascinating. My own human behavior, my own shadows and shit, my own my own altruistic ideals, my own uh, manipulations, all the things that I do, and then the things that you do. And I hope you're becoming aware of your own unhealthiness and your own goodness and trying to understand why you do what you do. Today, we're going to dive a little bit into human behavior. Human behavior, from a fascinating standpoint, my job, I get to see human behavior and tinker with it every day as a pawnbroker for a pawn shop here in Southern Utah. I work as the manager of the Family Pawn Hurricane location in Hurricane Utah. And I started this job six years ago. And every interaction with a customer is a opportunity to watch human behavior. Because my job is based very deeply in negotiating with other uh, human beings. Uh, people come in every day on their low moments, wanting to borrow 20 bucks just to keep their gas bill on. There also are thieves who come into our store and try to sell or do loans on stolen things. And customers come in on their best days trying to pick out a ring so that they can propose to the girl that they've fallen in love with. And so you get to see this wide spectrum of human emotion, human behavior, human motives. And my job on my side of the counter is to essentially be a psychologist 
and to use psychology to uh, manipulate transactions to the favor of the company I work for. So if somebody comes in with uh, an Xbox One, I'm going to handle that customer in that situation entirely different than 10 minutes later when another customer comes in with an Xbox One. And it all is based on customer customer history, what I know about this person standing in front of me, what their body language is telling me, what tells that there are within their words. I ask certain kinds of questions to get people to show their cards more fully about what their intentions really are. And it's a fun, fun exercise. And I think I'm damn good at it. And, and it becomes a cool opportunity to kind of see how humans work. Just to give an example, yesterday, a customer came in to buy a iPad and a pair of AirPods. The AirPods were marked $99.99, $100, and the iPad was $249.99, $250. And this, this man comes in, and he really quickly sees these things, and you can see he wants them. And uh, he gets them, you know, has our employee take them both out of the case, and he's talking about how he needs both of these things. And he says, what if I buy both of these? What, what would you do for me? And in the pawn business, everybody's trying to negotiate a better price. I, on my side of the counter, am trying to negotiate a better deal for my company. And the customer on that side of the counter is trying to negotiate a better deal for themselves. And so I offered to take uh, $20 off the total, $350 down to $330. And this customer said, oh, come on, come on. I was, I was thinking, because I said, hey, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll take $10 off each. And the customer goes, well, you know what? What I was thinking was that uh, what you could do is about $350. Now, as soon as he said it, he knew he made a mistake. He knew that he gave me the actual total of the two items that I have. That's what I'm asking is $350. In other words, he accidentally asked for no discount. And I smile and I look at him, but inside my head at that very moment, I know I've got him. And it all plays on the emotion of embarrassment. When we humans feel embarrassment, we, we have little choice because we're, we're now looking at the outside world and we're feeling shame like, oh, I'm an idiot. Everybody thinks I'm stupid. I'm the dumbest guy in the room. I just made a fool of myself. And that embarrassment in that situation tells me right, right then, right there, I've got them. I've got them. When somebody feels embarrassment like that within a negotiation, they want to move on from that embarrassment as quick as possible. Like all of us do. We all want to move on from embarrassment. And so I smiled at him and just said, hey, to be honest, 20 bucks off is the best I can do. Do you think we can make that work? And he immediately said, yeah, let's do that. Thank you. Let's make that work. When somebody feels embarrassment in a negotiation, they, they just are willing, they're willing to do whatever it takes to move on from it. And very rarely that whatever it takes is to walk away. Because walking away, they know, will also add more embarrassment. I just gave the price that they're asking. I feel like a fool. If I walk away now, it's like walking away with my tail between my legs. So the way that the human being now re-enters the conversation, claiming back their pride and their ego, is to simply accept the deal on the table and say thank you, pay for it, and move on. And I've seen this happen so many times over the six years and at other times in my life, but much more sporadically, that, that I know it works. I know there's something to it. And again, there's not a way that I can, I guess I could, I guess there are ways to manipulate people into feeling embarrassment, uh, but that can backfire too. When you're the one who causes the embarrassment, that now brings up uh, walls that include anger and ego and defensiveness that can lead to a customer walking away. But when the customer causes their own embarrassment, it tends to send that person into a space that they are 
exponentially more likely to take your offer on the table. And it's things like that that I get to see every day. And last night, my wife and I are watching a movie on Netflix. And it's not that great of a movie, but I would recommend it uh, from a relationship standpoint. The name of the movie is Good Kisser. It's about a lesbian couple who are about to venture out and try including a third person. So they meet with this attractive woman. And the idea is that, hey, we're going to play all night. We're going to talk and conversate and enjoy each other's company. We're going to connect. And maybe if we hit it off, maybe the night ends with us being intimate and sexual. And by the way, I intentionally separate those two, intimacy or being intimate as, and then sexuality. And the movie starts off with this lesbian couple. They are getting into an Uber or a Lyft uh, ride to go to the house. And during this drive, you get to see this lesbian couple for the very first time in the movie interact with each other. And they are doing what all of us do in relationships, although I think maybe a little more unhealthy. But it's, it's by putting it in your face so heavy that you're able to really notice it. And so I think this is one of the key points in the movie is this very opening scene where they're in the Uber ride or the Lyft ride. They're on their way to a chick's house that they're hoping to have a threesome with, but they're also very nervous and, and wanting it to go right. And so you see these two people who love each other, these two women who love each other, but they're constantly giving words of affirmation and then shitting on each other. Words of affirmation, shit on each other. Words of affirmation, shit on each other. And you can see this within all of our relationships too. We are constantly signaling to the other human beings that we love that we love them. And then we follow it right up with trying to manipulate the other human beings into being what we need them to be. And so often in the first half of life, we are deeply struggling with trying to get the world to conform to the way we want it to be. You know how you do human inside. You know what it would take for the people around you to conform and to behave and to act and to speak in ways that validate who you are and give you optimal enjoyment. So throughout your life, especially in that first half of life, you are continually trying to get other people to be what you need them to be so that you have an optimal human experience. And this shows up in lots of ways. If, if my wife is too loud, I'm asking her to be quiet. If my kids are asking for things that I don't want to give them, I make them feel guilty or shameful for asking in the first place. If I want to have sex tonight, but my wife doesn't, I roll over and I pout. If uh, my wife says something that I wish I could have said or worded differently, I'm right there correcting her. If my friends suggest doing something that I don't want to do, I am putting in my two cents, trying to manipulate the situation into them thinking about doing what I want to do and feeling some level of coercion to do it, but also using language so that they know that I don't really need them to do what I want to do, even though deep down I am begging for them to do what I want to do. And so we humans are constantly saying, I love you. Please don't do that. I care a lot about you. Please do it a different way. I think you're awesome. That was really shitty. And we're constantly signaling these messages to the people around us. Now, at some point, we start to awaken and we start to sense that, you know what? These other humans are never going to be the way I want them to be, number one. Number two, life is going to be a mixed bag no matter what. And Glenn and I got into these conversations over the last couple of weeks where we talked about like what our expectations are of the human experience. 
and what is good and what is bad? And do we really have as much control as we think we do? And the answer is no, we don't. And you're going to see in upcoming conversations, because I I think we're going to have at least two more conversations left. You're going to see in upcoming conversations that there is a recognition that part of the path of surrender is to realize that the moment in front of you, this present moment, is unfolding all across the universe with or without you. And what is good or bad is really based on your expectations, your needs and wants, your likes and dislikes. And part of the path of surrender is learning to just live with the world as it unfolds, as it is, and to stop trying to manipulate the outside world to be what you need it to be so that you can be okay. And so again, we go through this process of loving the people around us, then shitting on them, loving the people around us and shitting on them, but we don't have to do it that way. And so in recent years, my wife and I, our relationship has gotten so much better for the soul, if, if for lots of reasons, but It would have gotten better for the sole reason that I began to learn to live with her as she is. My wife used to always say that I loved the idea of her and that I really wasn't loving her. And I always hated that comment because of course I love her. But what she was pointing to is, Bill, you're always trying to get me to be something other than I am. And it's not just her. I would do this with everyone. I would do this with everything. And I wasn't doing it like this giant douchebag who's just walking around trying to intentionally manipulate the world. I was doing it like all of us do it. And we do it to various degrees. Some of us are better at it than others. But we're constantly trying to get the world to give us the experience that we want, that we think is optimal. One of the big challenges over the last two years, and it's been little tiny nudges years before that, but really in the last two years and really strongly in the last year, is this decision on my wife's behalf and on my behalf to start allowing this person we love, this person that we've enjoyed going through life together with, to simply be who they are and to allow their wants and needs to be different, to allow them to speak or act in ways that are different, even just in recent weeks. I, I have this thing where right now my wife and I have this place where we're super vulnerable with each other, where we're talking to each other in the most open ways about, about what our needs and wants are and specifically what, what's hurting us. And so when I share with my wife, say, hey, baby, you're hurting me. This thing you did, this thing you said, it hurts me. And, and I'm wanting her to put my insides back together because I'm disrupted inside. I've talked about this on the podcast before, like when my daughter gets disrupted, she starts to lash out against everyone because she's just trying to put her insides back together. And it's what you and I are doing too. Every time the world doesn't give us what we want it to give, we feel a disruption inside. And to whatever degree that disruption is happening, we begin to get uh, uncomfortable at first. And if that disruption is severe enough, we begin to lash out against the world, trying to make the world right again. But often our lashing out doesn't really accomplish that. It actually accomplishes something else, which is to disrupt everyone else. And we think like, if I can just disrupt everyone else, I'll get back to being good. And it doesn't work. You disrupt other people. Now they're disrupting you back again. And this is how fights happen and arguments happen. And, and all of these, you know, these disagreements that go into two in the morning and you're threatened to leave each other and you, you tell each other that you, know, you, don't, you don't think the other person loves you and all the bullshit that goes into a fight between two people. And, and so I'm telling my wife, like, this hurt me. And it's this thing you said, 
and here's how I understood it, and here's how it hurt me. And then I need my wife to apologize a certain way. I need you to show this kind of body language. I need you to use these kinds of words. And what I'm doing is saying, hey, this is the response that I require in order for me to soothe myself and get over this disruption I'm feeling. And we talk about this. My wife and I will sit up at night and we're talking like, hey, I, like, I can't give you this exact thing you have in your head of what you want me to give. It's not who I am. I'm, I'm this person and you're that person. Here's the kinds of responses I, that feel natural or capable to me. Uh, this is within my bounds. And, and uh, I can't give you exactly what you're looking for. And so in the recent weeks and months as we've had these conversations, and again, we've been at least entering this space of being vulnerable for the last year, in recent weeks and months, um, I'm, I'm inside my head going like, why do I require her to word an apology or a statement of affirmation or a nod that she understands my feelings? Why am I demanding that she give it to me in a certain way? And, and what all I can come up with is I'm disrupted and I'm expecting the outside world to fix me. And the reality is I don't need fixed. If I just sit with the disruption and enter back into the world being present and responding to the world in healthy ways, the disruption goes away on its own. It goes away on its own. Once you learn to let the outside world, including all the people around you, not be you. The moment you stop requiring your wife to be you and to respond like you, the moment you stop expecting your kids to frame the world in their moment the way you are, the moment you stop requiring the outside world to change so that you can get over your disruption is the moment everything begins to shift. I was thinking about, I was out bowling about a week ago. And my wife kicked my ass, by the way, and, and she's not as good of a bowler as me. But man, that night, every every time she went up there, she had a spare or a strike. I think there were only one or maybe two frames where she didn't have a spare or a strike. I think she ended up bowling about a 140. And she just, she was doing so awesome. And it was so much fun. To the left of me was an entire big group of people. I assumed a family or a friend group, and I couldn't exactly tell. But there were multiple people in that group who were uber competitive. And by the way, I'm a super competitive guy. So I can't promise you that if you ever uh, encounter me in some type of competitive exercise that I will operate the way I'm about to tell you. But on this particular night, I didn't feel competitive. I was excited and happy for my wife as she was doing this incredible job bowling. She was just nailing it. But I'm also watching the group to our left. And there are three, two or three people in the group who are uber competitive. They are walking up to the to the ball return, uh, super rigid, no smile, serious look on the face. You could tell by the way they were bowling that they were wanting to be exact with where they stood, exact with how they threw the ball. And when they threw it, even when they got a spare or a strike, the look on their face as they walked back was this stern, but also like this arrogant, prideful look. And so I'm watching these guys who are bowling pretty well, but who cannot really enjoy the present moment because you can see that they are needing inside of them to be the best bowler there. They need to win. And that winning, being the best that night, somehow fills the ego and allows them to, to feel okay and safe in the world. And again, I think all of us can relate to this. 
But as I'm watching, I'm noticing like it's got to be so hard to be present and to enjoy the entire experience, including the others bowling, when your worry and concern is with winning. Like, how can you enjoy the fun and the successes of another when all you can think about is, I need to beat them so that I can be okay in the world? And then I'm over here just cheering my wife on, literally happy for her. I'm in my head knowing my past self and going like, I would be hoping my wife would be doing bad so that I would have a chance to catch up. And in this moment, all I'm hoping for is, baby, throw another strike. Nail it. Because all I want now is the best for her. And you see, when you need the outside world to be what you need it to be, to calm your disruptions and to give you the optimal experience, somewhere deep inside you, you are needing the misfortune of others. You need your partner to feel bad so that they do things the way you want them to do them. You need your friends to feel guilt so that they change their plans to do the thing that you would enjoy. You need your sister to bowl a gutter ball so that you have a chance to win. When you, when you are so concerned with your insides being okay all the time, you actually end up feeding the disruption inside you. You actually have less pleasant moments. You actually have less joy in the present. So my suggestion is to learn to let others not be you. Recently, I had a friendship, a friendship that I deeply valued. And, and I'm, I'm not, I'll be honest, I wasn't perfect at it. None of us are perfect friends. None of us are as connected or reaching out or concerned or taking part in the life of the people that we claim to love. So please know that I'm, I'm certainly uh, at fault in this situation as I describe it. But recently I, I had a friendship that came to what I perceive as an end. And I'm still trying to figure out the why of that and where it went south. And, and I, I want, the only thing I can recognize that I think could have been dealt with better between the two of us is the idea of telling stories. In this friendship, a, a thing arised and, and both sides had very differing expectations of how this difficulty that came up should be handled. And in that process, both sides are asking for what they want and demanding that their needs be met. And the thing that came out of this situation was the stories that get told. So often in life, we encounter, again, disruptions inside us. We feel jealousy. We feel shame. We feel unheard. We feel neglected. We feel abused or traumatized. We feel manipulated. And we begin to assign stories to what we think happened in the parts that we can't see. We weren't there for And sometimes we're hurt so bad that we don't even want to sit down and talk. We don't want to sit in space with the other person and give them a chance to explain their side of things, even though we'd love for the chance to be heard. And so often when we tell stories about other people, our stories are myths. And when we're not there, when we're not inside their head, when we're not there as they are processing the experience in front of them, we often assume the worst in people. We often assume like, I know why they did that. I know what their reasons are. They never let this happen. They always tried to do that. And the reality may be entirely different than the perception that leads to the stories that we tell. One of the things that I've gotten really good at in the last year, and I suck at a lot of stuff. So as we go through this podcast episode by episode, and as things arise and things get shared, 
I hope that you'll see me sharing both my shit and my successes and not see this conversation as some guy sitting in front of a microphone just bragging about his development, but rather trying to share the human experience so that each of us can gain insights and do this thing better, healthier, more compassionately. But one of the things I've gotten really good at in the last year or two or three, and it's been a process, is to stop telling the stories about other people when you don't really have any clue what the exact reasons are for why they behave. If you reach out to a friend and you say, hey friend, we haven't seen you in a while, let's get together. And that friend goes two weeks not responding. Don't assume a story that they don't like you anymore. Don't assume a story that they've met other people and they have better friendships than you. That could or could not be true. I'm not saying it isn't true. Just stop telling the story. When you live present, you don't need to tell stories about the past or the future or the moments that are not right in front of you. If you want to know another human being's motive, if you want to know another human being's reason, if you want to know what all went into another human being doing what they did, and you want to know what they were thinking, there's only one way to know that. And it's to sit down and to first create the safest of spaces for everyone present to speak and to be heard, and then to allow that person to tell their own story. I came from a religion that when you leave, it tells your story for you. It tells everyone that you love why you left, why you stopped believing, what all went into that decision. It labels you, it stereotypes you, it paints you as certain things. And the reality is for most people in that situation, those stories and labels, stereotypes, the imposing of motives are false. And having seen that firsthand, I work really hard in my life to not do that to others. Everybody gets their story. What you don't get is you don't get to impose another story. You don't get to sit back and go, my story is that what you did is this. What you thought is this. Your reasons were these. No, that's their story. You get your story. My motives were this. My reasons were this. Here's why I acted and reacted. Here's why I responded this way. Here's what I was thinking. Here's what I heard. Here's how I interpreted it. Here's how I felt. But when you start to tell another person's story about what goes on inside their head, about why they do what they do, you've overstepped a line. And unfortunately, you often do additional damage. Back to bowling for just a moment in wrapping up. There were several times that night, I'm right-handed, and I used to bowl underhand so that my hand was on top of the bowling ball and I would bring the ball back and fling it with my wrist. And I bowled that way for decades. I I was on a bowling league when I was a kid. Our team got first place and won. Uh, That's the way I bowled. And I was always, not great, but competent. I always bowled around 100, 110, 120. And I did it that way. And I always thought like, I'm gonna learn how to be really good this way. But at some point you realize that to be really good at bowling, you have to throw a curveball. To have any chance at seriously high scores, You have to have a ball that crosses across the lane as it strikes the pins. And so eventually I said, I'm going to start to learn how to throw a curveball. And so I've done that. Uh, By the way, if anybody is visiting Southern Utah, uh, if you live in Southern Utah, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to go out with the reels, my wife and I would love to go bowling with you. It's just fun for us. We're We're not that great at it, but it's fun. And we enjoy people and we enjoy meeting other humans and connecting with other humans. I really like connection. I really like intimacy. I really like to be around other people and to get to know them 
and to be in uh, sacred space with them. And so if you want to go bowling, reach out. I'd love it. I know some of you are listening right now and you're going like, ah, nah, he doesn't want to be bothered. He's got so much on his plate. But no, really, we really do enjoy going out with people. We had a dinner a few months ago at uh, an Indian restaurant with a couple. We, ha- we only met him that one night. We haven't met him since, but it was such a fun evening. We had a good time. I sometimes worry whether people think that we didn't like them or felt this or felt that. And the reality is we just love being around humans and we love connecting with people. So if you want to go bowling, reach out. But the last thing here with the bowling is that uh, as I learned to throw a curveball, I'm right-handed. I go up to the lane, I throw my, my ball and I try to get it really close to the right edge and then spin back into the left and essentially hit just to the right or just to the left of that front pin. And I do pretty good at this. Um, but what I noticed is that when you throw a curveball, if you hit those pins and what you leave left, what is left standing up is only that far back right pin that sits right on the edge of the lane. That for a right-handed person, that is the most difficult pin in the world. Now, it shouldn't be. I should be able to walk up and th- go back to doing my underhand straight throw, and I should be able to stand on that edge and throw that ball right down the edge and hit that pin. But the psychology of riding the line, the psychology of throwing a straight bowling ball. In other words, if all 10 pens were there and you said, I just want you to hit that middle pin, you'd have a much better chance of hitting that middle pin than if there's only one pin standing and you have to hit that pin. And you add to it, I can't throw my curveball. I've got to throw a straight ball or I have to stand way off to the left and get creative. If I stand all the way to the right and try to throw a straight ball, it is near impossible. The, the brain blockage, your brain being told you're going to throw a gutter ball, you're going to throw a gutter ball, you're going to throw a gutter ball, is so overpowering that you cannot do mind over matter. In fact, you, your, your chances would be better if you did stand all the way over to the left, which, by the way, you have to cover more ground. It's a shorter straight line if you stand on the right edge and throw a straight ball and hit that far right back pin. But strangely, it's actually psychologically easier If you stand all the way over to the left and try to throw a straight ball and hit that back right pin. And for the most part, a huge component of bowling is overcoming mind over matter. It's overcoming it. It's overcoming this idea that your brain is being told the the possibilities of what could happen and the fear of the negative. It's such a huge part of bowling and it's a huge part of life. We're so scared. Scared of what will go wrong, scared of what will happen, scared of what the past means, scared of what the future holds, scared of what people are doing when they're not in our presence, scared of what people are doing to us and lying about fear. In bowling, like in life, get up there. Get out of your head all the negative and all the scary things that could happen and just throw the ball. And whatever happens, just recognize it's life. At the end of the day, you really don't have that much control. Things do what things do. People do what people do. And you get to enjoy the experience that's in front of you right this moment. I hope you're enjoying the Almost Awakened podcast. I appreciate you as a listener. I hope that you uh, become a member of the Reddit, R-E-D-D-I-T dot com backslash R backslash Almost Awakened, all one word. Would love to see various folks here reach out to me. Love to hear what you're learning about life. Love to hear what resources and links that are turning you on to being a better human and having a better human experience. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, 
or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.